of evolution. I heard the story about a newspaper reporting in the old Soviet Union. I don't know if it's true or not, but it illustrates a point. A car race between the United States and the Soviets ended with the United States car in first and the Soviet car second. You should also know that there were only two cars in this race. But the reporting in the Soviet Union stated the Soviet car came in second while the United States car came in second to last. Perfectly true, yet perfectly misleading. You see, you've got to be careful with statistics. For example, it's possible the air in the room you're in right now could spontaneously all move in the same direction at once, piling up in either end of this room, leaving you gasping for air. It's possible, yes. But when calculated, the probability of that happening is so small as to reasonably be rounded off to zero. It's not going to happen. So breathe easy. A similar argument against evolution applies to the probability of events occurring which result in new species, mutations, natural selection, and spontaneous generation. That probability is zero when rounded off reasonably. It's mathematically possible, but the expectation is so low that we logically round it down to zero and state that this event is never going to occur. In his book, Is Science Moving Toward Belief in God? Paul A. Fisher quotes a French mathematician by the name of Lecomte de Noy. De Noy examined the laws of probability for a single molecule of high dissymmetry to be formed by the action of chance. He found that, on an average, the time needed to form one such molecule of our terrestrial globe would be 10 to the power 253. But, continued Denoy ironically, let us admit that no matter how small the chance, it could happen. One molecule could be created by such astronomical odds of chance. However, he says, one molecule is of no use. Hundreds of millions of identical ones are necessary. Thus, we either admit the miracle or doubt the absolute truth of science. Well, as we come to Genesis chapter 1, we come to what now is a very familiar verse to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's very plain language. This happens to be what I believe. The eternal God, at some point in the past, created out of nothing, without pre-existing material, the universe as it is now in six literal days. He capped his creation on the sixth day by creating man in his own image. Man that is intelligent, with personality, with self-consciousness, the ability to think and to reason. This creation occurred in six days. The seventh day, it was over, and God rested from creating and blessed the seventh day. This all occurred 
about 6,000 years ago. And the entire creation, at the instant of its creation, was mature. That's what I believe. You see, at the time of creation, death did not exist. In fact, no corrupting influence of any kind existed. That's why God looked at his creation and said, it is very good. So I can't reconcile this with the idea of animals dying or any plants dying. There couldn't have been any kind of natural selection process going on. If this statement is true, there couldn't have been any survival of the fittest because everything survived in that perfect creation. The Bible says that death and corruption entered the creation for the very first time when Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God. But that's described in chapter 3. It has nothing to do with the six literal days of creation. I also happen to believe that the accuracy of the Genesis text is no different than the accuracy of any other portion of Scripture. All Scripture, it says, is given by inspiration of God. Well, Jesus summed it up this way when he said, Thy word is truth. The Bible is true. Whether you're talking about revelation and prophecy, whether you're talking about genesis and historical origins, the Bible is true. Whether you're talking about salvation or sanctification, whether you're talking about the life of Jesus or the theology of Jesus, whatever the Bible says is absolutely true. And the Bible is as true in Genesis as it is anywhere else and everywhere else. Now, in spite of that very clear-cut approach to the Word of God, many people, some of you watching, including some Christians, deny the Genesis account. Now, let me say this again. I am not a scientist. I have friends that are. Some have appeared on this program before. What they tell me is that science, now listen to me, Science has proven nothing that negates the Genesis record. Now, there's one book that comments on Genesis with complete authority. The New Testament. It's not written by any scientist or a theologian. It was written by simple men who were given the word to write by God himself so that the creator, in essence, is the author. You have in Genesis the account of creation. You have in the New Testament the creator's inspired commentary on the Genesis record. For example, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 35 says... I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Indicating to me there was a point in time when the world was founded. Mark 13 verse 19 says, For in those days shall be affliction such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created. John chapter 1. Verse 3, 
All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Acts 4, verse 24. Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in it. Acts 14, 15 says that you should turn from these vanities, these idols, under the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all things therein. Everything, the Bible says, everything, the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything that inhabits in them was made by God. In his book, Creation and Change, Genesis 1-1 to 2-4, in the light of changing scientific paradigms, Douglas Kelly cites Hubert Thomas, who has examined the New Testament allusions to the creation as follows. He says, in effect, three main points are demonstrated by reading the list we provide. These three points confirm that the New Testament can in no case whatsoever be appealed to in order to sustain any sort of evolutionary theory. First, without exception, references to creation and especially the citations of Genesis 1-11 to point to historical events. It is no different than the historical death of the Lord Jesus Christ on Golgotha. As far as the New Testament is concerned, Creation ex nihilo and the creation of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, there is no legend and no parable. All deal with persons and events of historical and universal significance. Second, says, without exception, creation is always mentioned as a unique event which took place at a particular moment in past time. Creation took place. It was accomplished. Events occurred which corrupted the world and now it awaits a new creation which will take place in the future at a given moment. Third, he says, the details and recitations of creation given in Genesis 1-3 to are considered to be literally true, historical, and also of surpassing importance. The New Testament doctrine based upon these citations would be without validity and even erroneous if the primeval events were not historically true. For instance, consider the entry of sin into the world. If Adam were not the head of the whole human race, then Jesus Christ, the last Adam, is not head of the new creation. He's absolutely right, I think. You can't find anything about evolution in Genesis is not there. You can't find it anywhere in the Old Testament. You can't find it anywhere in the New Testament. When Thomas says recitations of creation given in Genesis 1 to 3 are considered in the New Testament to be literally true, historical, and of surpassing importance, the New Testament doctrine based upon these citations out of Genesis 1 to 3 would be, he says, without any validity and erroneous if the events of Genesis were not historically true. For example, he said, the entry of sin into the world, if Adam were not the head of the whole human race, then Jesus, the last Adam, is not the head of the new creation. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
Verse 22, look at what it says. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. See, clearly the New Testament writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saw sin and death enter the world through a very historic man named Adam and through this very historic act of disobedience. The New Testament makes no small number of references to Genesis and to creation. And it does so very naturally. It doesn't come across affected. It doesn't come across sort of incredulous. It doesn't come across saying, you know, I know this is hard to believe, and I know you're not really going to have, you're going to have a hard time swallowing this, but this is how it is. It doesn't do that. There's no attempt to defend, no attempt to explain, no attempt to assuage somebody's disbelief. It just simply states it as fact. Now, in Genesis 1, verses 3 to 5, let's go there. Here's what it says. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. So here the Bible says that on the first day, God created the essential elements of time, space, and matter. God then added light. He fixed this light-dark cycle in the permanent day-night continuum of our 24-hour days. Now, let's go to day two. Because in day two, God continued to shape those elements into a habitable environment for life that he would cre then create. God said in verse 6, Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. So day one, God separated the light from the darkness. Day two, God separated heaven from earth. On day one, the earth was covered all covered with water. On day two, the Bible says, God separated that water into two places. That's what it's saying. He put an expanse between, and some, so there was some water above, and some water remained on the earth. So you have the water that's still on the earth, but now some water that's separated is taken above and in between these two elements of water, the Bible says there is an expanse. Now look at verse 8. It says, God called this expanse heaven. It's what we understand as the space above us. It literally means the sky or the skies. It refers to the universe and, and, and the space above us. So there was no heaven there was no space until the second day and God just cut the way around that sphere and released some of the water and sent it up, creating between the waters above and the waters below 
space. Now, pagan stories try to explain creation. Interestingly, none of the pagan stories teach evolution. But for example, the legends of Mesopotamia say that after the god Marduk had vanquished Tiamat, the goddess of the world ocean, she's depicted as this great and mighty sea monster, as well as other monsters and monstrosities that she had created to aid her in her combat. After he has slain this chief enemy with his weapons, you know what it says? It says, he cut her carcass horizontally and divided her into two halves, which lay one on top of the other. Out of the upper half, he formed the heaven, and out of the lower half, he made the earth, which included the sea. You see, to me, this Bible is completely reasonable. God took the waters way up, left some still engulfing the earth, and in between the two, he created this separator between the waters, which was the expanse we call heaven. In verse 7 we read, And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. Again, he repeats the same thing, just to be sure we get it. There's an expanse, and God separated. The waters went up, some of the waters stayed below, and in between, he creates a space. Now, this is kind of interesting. At the end of verse 7, interesting to me, he says, and it was so. Now, is that redundant? He said in verse 6, let there be an expanse in the midst of of the waters, verse 7, and God made the expanse. Why does he add, and it was so? Is that just sort of a redundant kind of editorial comment? No, no. In fact, it serves a very necessary purpose. It's a very critical statement. You see, there's no such comment in verse 3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. It doesn't say, and it was so. That little phrase used here in verse 9, verse 11, verse 15 and verse 24, it's used to affirm something that is fixed, something that doesn't change, something that has remained for all time. It doesn't appear after verse 3, let there be light and there was light, because there's light and there's darkness, light and darkness, light and darkness. It's not fixed. But when you say God created the heavens, that's fixed. And it was so. That lends itself to the understanding of the firm and fixed, unchanging nature of that particular element of creation. By the way, notice he doesn't say it was good yet. He didn't say it on day one. He didn't say it on day two. In fact, he won't say it until verse 10, when the earth is livable then he'll say, it was good. Verse 8 ends with, God calls the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. He did it in a day. He created the firmament, the expanse, the heavens, the sky. Now we're ready for day three. A woman one time came to Salvador Dali and said, is it hard to paint a picture? No, replied the artist. It's either easy 
or it's impossible. You see, the same answer holds for creation of the universe. For God, well, it was easy. For any other person, it's impossible. Let me close with the 104th Psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. He established the earth upon its foundation so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they hurried away. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Let my meditation be pleasing to him. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Our God and loving Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the Genesis account of creation that not only answers the question of where we've come from, what our purpose is, but also what our ultimate destiny is. Thank you for loving us to the point that you sent Jesus to die on the cross. If any one of my viewers, Heavenly Father, anyone listening to this program right now has not surrendered their heart to Jesus Christ and recognized him as creator and redeemer, may they do so right now. Bless each and every viewer, I pray in Jesus' name. Well, as we do with every program, we're always looking for some resources for your spiritual library uh, to help you better understand that which we're talking about and ultimately uh, get us to better understand this Creator God who loved us to the point of sending His only begotten Son to die on a cross to save us. Well, today's offer is a book. It is called A Five-Day Plan to know God. It's written by a man by the name of Morris Venden. It is a wonderful book. It says here, what's this about knowing God in five days? Does it take just that long? No more, no less? Why don't you find out? We'd love to send you this book free of charge. It's a gift, postage paid. All you have to do is follow the instructions you're about to hear and we'll send you this book. I hope you accept our offer. Here's the information. 
To receive today's free offer, you can log on to the Lessons for Living television website, www.l4ltv.com. That's the Lessons for Living television website, www.l4ltv.com. You can also write us at Post Office Box 27030, Simcoe Conlon Post Office, Oshawa, Ontario, L1G 0A3. And we would be happy to send the offer out to you. If you live in Canada, this offer will be sent out to you free and postage paid. For viewers living outside of Canada, shipping charges will apply. If you wish, you could order this offer by calling our 1-800 number and speaking with one of our volunteers at 1-800-972-0337. 1-800-972-0337. Well, we've come to the end of another Lessons for Living television program. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, a couple of things I want to share with you before we go. Uh, if you're calling in for the offer and we can't get to you right away, we use volunteers. And so uh, just be patient. You can always leave a voicemail and we'll go through those and we'll get those. Or you may want to call uh, outside of the peak hours and try that. Or you can just order from the website, l4ltv.com. Now, while on that website, couple of things I'm going to point out to you on the website. All of the previous programs are there, so we have the most recent one there featured, and then there's these uh, buttons where you can see all of the seasons since we started the Lessons for Living programs are there. And uh, so you can see that. You can ask for the gift uh, from the website. You can find out where I am appearing live. So we'll have the dates, location. There'll be a link with directions. Uh, most Saturdays, I am at my church here in Toronto called the Harmony Church, which is on, at 89 Center Avenue. We're there Saturdays. We get started at about 10 o'clock with Bible study, and then 11.30, we have our worship service. We're a small group, a lot of fun. If you're looking to find a church that will accept you as you are and has a vibrant worship service, come out and check us out, 89 Center Avenue, the Harmony Adventist Church. It's on the website. On the website, you can also make a donation. You know, we survive based on the generosity of viewers like yourself. If you can help us out with a donation, the donation, we are a charitable organization, so you will get a tax-deductible charitable donation receipt for your donation. What does that money go to? Well, it helps to pay for the studio like we're in right now, renting the airtime for the network that you're watching us on, uh, you know, the books that we offer, the telephone, uh, you know, that stuff. Not one penny comes to pay my salary. It all gets invested back into the ministry. So if you can help us, you can do that on the website. Just go to the donate tab and uh, send your uh, donation. We would truly appreciate that. I want to tell you very quickly about our MissionNowCanada.com website. Mission Now Canada is a branch of our ministry that does mission work overseas. Uh, we've been to the Philippines and we're doing some interesting work in Paraguay and South America. If you're interested in that, you can acquire some information on, from the website. There's a form you can fill out and we'll follow up with you. MissionNowCanada.com On the website, missionnowcanada.com. You can also donate to that mission component of our ministry if that's what you're so inclined to do. Well, that's about it. They're giving me the sign here that it's time to go. 
want to thank you again for joining us. We hope to do this again real soon, and I hope you will be here also. And God bless you. We'll see you back here again real soon.